All right. Hi, everyone. Wait a sec. I'm using this camera today, aren't I? Okay, here we go. I'll make sure I can. Okay, there we go. Hi, everyone. This is Achuta Bhava from Nightlight Astrology. And today we're going to talk about Mercury and Mars coming into a conjunction as both are also moving into a square with Saturn. Um, this is happening as a first quarter moon is coming through. This is happening in the midst of an eclipse cycle. So it's a really exciting moment. Um, I'm also, after I talk about this, I'm going to open up for live Q&A. So if you have questions about anything related to astrology whatsoever, um, I will field your questions the best I can and uh, see where we go. Um, before I dive in today, I want to remind everybody that my new class, Ancient Astrology for the Modern Mystic, is coming up. It actually starts very soon. It starts on Saturday. I'm going to put this up on the screen so that you can see it. I'm going to screen share with you. And um, by the way, as I'm doing this, where are you guys coming from? Uh, fire off in the chat box for me and uh, let's do a little roll call. I'd love to see where you guys are coming from. It's always really fun for me to see what countries are represented in states and cities and stuff like that. Anyway, here's my website. I'll come and check back with you guys in a second. You go to my website, nightlightastrology.com and you go to the events page, or excuse me, the courses page and click on the first year course. You can scroll down and learn all about my upcoming program. It's over a hundred hours worth of classroom content. You can study the program live and join the webinars. They're on Saturdays at noon Eastern time. Uh, they're about two to three hours each. There's 30 of them on the year. In addition, we have 12 guest lectures that come in. We have breakout study sessions in between major units. There's tutoring year round in a discussion forum with a tutoring staff that I hire. There's also, you can you have access to me year round if you want to ask me questions too. Um, we have live clients that come into the classroom. You get to see me read. It's a great way to learn how to set up an astrological practice of your own. If that's what you want, other people come just because they love astrology and they want to go deeper and learning it just for themselves, whatever the case might be, the program has a little bit of something for everyone. Um, there's a ton of bonus content, optional homework and reading, just a lot of support for you to go as deeply as you want to. There is an early bird rate that saves you $500 off if you use it by Friday. Otherwise, the full tuition, we do have a payment plan that comes with that. And then there's need-based tuition for people who might be in some kind of financially um, difficult circumstance. And you can see if you qualify for that too. So um, that is uh, what I have. I can't believe it's already starting again, coming up on Saturday. So let's see where you guys are coming from before we get started talking about Mercury and Mars today. I've got a different camera view. I don't like to stream live um, with my other camera, even though my other camera is nicer. I don't know why. I just like I can see you a little bit better when I'm live streaming. Uh, so Colorado, of course, John, very, I'm so you're just such a, a faithful like I feel like I know you, even though I don't. But you're always here. Hello from Colorado. District four. You didn't say it this time, man. You let me down. Let's see, Toronto, uh, Melbourne, New Zealand, New Jersey, Wisconsin. Nice. I love that. You're my next door neighbor. I'm in Minnesota. New York City, Calgary, uh, Australia, Colorado, Cali, Australia, London, Puerto Rico, Slovenia. <laughs> oh, it's funny. Will you grow a beard? I have had a beard. I have had a beard before. I'm slowly growing out my hair a little bit right now. If you guys can tell, there's going to be some, it's going to be some awkward moments. So we'll get through them together. But uh, in my tradition, um, there's sort of like different gurus and different teachers have different expectations about your cleanliness and like your grooming habits as a monk, but someone who's in householder stage of life. 
Um, it's expected that I keep like a clean shaven face and typically a shaved head, but it's okay if you want to have like a, a, a shorter haircut. And that's not something I love. Uh, frankly, I just like, I'm like, ah, it's kind of a bummer, but it's, I also, um, I also really love having a lineage and I love having guidelines for how we shape and live our lives for me, you know, maybe it's just my Capricorn moon gets off on that kind of thing. So anyway, uh, but thanks for the suggestion to grow a beard. If you look at my Instagram, by the way, if you, if you guys want to friend me on Instagram, you can go back in time and see when I had a beard and like a lion's mane of hair down to my shoulders at my wedding. Um, anyway, Victoria, Texas, Maine, New Jersey, London, France. Wow. This is so cool. Hungry. Oh my gosh. So cool. Texas, New York city in the house, Turkey, Puerto Rico. Okay. Amazing. So, um, yeah, I'm in Minneapolis. I'm in the Twin Cities. So, uh, yeah, if you guys are in my neck of the woods at some point, I, I do hope uh, in the next year or so to, in, it's my goal in either 2022 or three to have an astrology retreat uh, here, probably here in the Twin Cities, so that people who want to come study in person can have like um, a week long astrology immersion. Uh, something like that was probably in the works. So maybe we'll see some of you guys in person at some point. All right. So today we are going to talk about Mercury in Scorpio conjoining with Mars and both of them squaring Saturn. So I'm going to put the real-time clock up on the screen. It's nice to hang out with you guys in person, by the way. Uh, it feels just a little bit more real to me. So let me just move a few things around so I can still see. Um... Someone said it made me look like Aquaman with the beard and long hair. Yeah, except for minus the amazing muscles. <laughs> that guy, I forget, he's in Game of Thrones too, isn't he? Um, or no, yeah, he was in Game of Thrones. Anyway, that dude's jacked. So here is, uh, here's Mercury and Mars and um, the square to Saturn. You can see them forming right now. They're on the same degree now, Mercury and Mars are. Mercury moves very quickly. So the two are going to conjoin within the next day. And between now and Thursday, basically the next 48 hours, all three of these planets are going to hit the square to one another. Now, remember, this is happening as both of these planets are also moving toward Uranus. And where is this coming from? This is coming from a new moon. If we go back about a week, uh, this is coming from a new moon. Let me put it up right here. The new moon was opposed to Uranus. So we're at a very critical turning point in our monthly lunation cycle, a first quarter moon. Let's review what that is and then try to put it into the context of this lunation cycle. A first quarter moon is like a critical twist or turn of the plot. Imagine that you're watching a movie and the the plot the seed the seedlings of the plot are planted in the first you know in the opening act and a lot of times it's toward the end of the first act and beginning of the second that the drama really takes off then it's usually peaking and you're moving toward resolution by the third act right this is why I was in my my three act plays in in high school so when you look at this first quarter moon what you're talking about is the the time when energy and the need to act, the impulse to move and act 
is becoming very strong within the context of whatever the new moon was pointing to. So the new moon plants a seed. It says, this is what I want. This is what I desire. In each of us, that looks different. It looks different in the collective and different kinds of collectives in our personal lives. The new moon plants a seed. The first quarter comes around and it's, it is the twists and turns of faith start rapidly developing with a feeling of, of action, a necessity to act and, um, to work with challenges that are coming up potentially challenges don't mean bad, by the way, a lot of astrologers say this will be challenging. What they really mean is that it's, uh, it's not, it's not, a the, the action is peaking, but action can be very exciting and very enjoyable, right? Just depends on what kind of action. So the action's peaking during first quarter moons, the moon is half lit up, half dark, it's growing bigger. And we're essentially saying that the moon is now squaring the position of the sun, which is where it started in the conjunction with the sun. The moon is the twists and turns of the wheel of fortune relative to the sun, which is the seed image that the cycle is aimed at. So you're talking about tension, conflict, action relative to the impulse or original desires of the cycle. That's what every first quarter moon is, is doing. Now, when we get to the first quarter moon moment in a cycle, and there's a lot of drama at that first quarter moment, then it's going to be a more intense, it's going to be more intense forms of action. Uh, and you have to look at which planets are involved. Well, here we have Mercury, Mars, and Saturn. So that's what we're going to, we, we need to contextualize all of that. Now, remember this moon cycle started Let's go back here now and just take a look at what's happening right now. So here's the two planets squaring Saturn. And remember that this cycle began, this cycle began as we had a new moon opposing Uranus. So what is the seed image of a Uranian moon cycle, especially when the Uranian moon is not a conjunction, but an opposition to Uranus? What we're talking about is the impulse or desire for revolutionary change with uh, the Promethean impulse of Uranus behind it which means better, faster, stronger, progressive, uh, liberating, break out of old habits and customs, uh, defy, rebel, resist authority, maybe um, some aura of inventiveness or being eccentric or acting outside of norms. And so it's a, it's a really nice moon cycle in terms of making significant changes, taking risks, being experimental, um, and, and possibly uh, resisting or defying different forms of authority within yourself or traditions or habits that just, you know, they aren't doing it anymore. So I like this, you know, this moon cycle, but with the new moon opposing Uranus, you're going to have the idea that this Uranian change will come easily. No, that's not, that's not possible when it's an opposition. An opposition suggests polarization, that whatever this Uranian impulse is, it's going to come through different things polarizing with each other. That's what makes the moon cycle a little bit more volatile, especially because when we reach the full moon of this cycle, it's an eclipse. And the eclipses suggest that whatever manifests makes bigger dramatic changes to our lives. And they're what kinds of changes with the full moon in Taurus? Uranian changes. With the early new moon opposing Uranus, there are Uranian changes that come through polarization. So that's the kind of cycle we're in, just to give you guys the mood and feeling of it. Now, this is going to apply to everyone very differently based on especially where those fixed signs are in your chart or what we call solid signs in ancient astrology. Where's Taurus? Where's Scorpio? Where's uh, Aquarius? You know, those houses in particular will be 
the, the topical areas that are being activated in your life through these tensions. For some people, it may be a big deal because it's hitting planets at the same time in your chart or, or, or points. And for other people, it's really not going to be that big of a deal because it's not hitting planets or points in your chart. So that's the hard thing about listening to astrology is that you're like, man, there's always all this drama and I'm not experiencing. Well, a lot of times that's because there is drama. It's not necessarily dialed into your chart in a particularly dramatic way. Regardless, you can usually feel these things. If you start studying astrology and tracking the transits regularly, you'll notice it around you. You'll notice it in people around you. Uh, you know, so, okay. Now onto this first quarter moon and let's, let's try to contextualize it a little bit. So we talked yesterday about Mercury, Mars, and Saturn as an archetypal, as archetypal combinations. We did Mercury, Mars, we did Mercury, Saturn, and we did Mars, Saturn. And I sort of gave you different examples of people that sort of exemplify or um, embody those archetypal qualities in different ways in their lives. Um, this morning, I wanted to take a different approach when I did my meditation for the day. I actually did this video twice, didn't like either take and decided I need to do it live stream because I just wanted to have a conversation about it. I just felt like I couldn't, I couldn't tap into something authentic enough in recording today. It doesn't happen rarely. That doesn't happen that often for me. Like sometimes, sometimes I just feel like I just need to get on a live stream. So one of the reasons that I find it difficult to talk about this particular first quarter moon is because Mercury, Mars, and Saturn are in the air right now, and it can make communicating difficult, and especially communicating about difficult topics or difficult energies, which is sort of the transit itself, right? The transit itself is sort of a difficult energy to talk about, but it can also be doubly difficult in that it's difficult to talk, and then difficult things come up that require you to talk. You have to talk about difficult things, and it's already difficult to talk about them. So... The hexagram that I drew this morning for this transit was um, called, uh, let's see here, hold on just a second. Uh, it's called hexagram number three, which is sometimes referred to as difficulty at the beginning. I'm going to turn my uh, screen sharing off now. Uh, let's see here. Okay, so it's sometimes called difficulty at the beginning. I've got a whole bunch of notes written down. So... You can imagine this hexagram is, I've talked about this one before on my channel, but this hexagram is essentially the hexagram of um, that describes after the first two hexagrams of the I Ching, which suggest the primordial burst of creation, almost like the big bang with hexagram number one. Number two suggests things uh, diversifying and coming in, the one becomes many in hexagram number two. And in hexagram number three, you see that differentiation of life now struggling in the earliest and most vulnerable phases to take root and become individualized and further differentiated and sort of strong and healthy. So, you know, I remember one time when I was living next to my grandfather uh, uh, and I was in graduate school and I, and I would go out and help him do work on the land sometimes. And I really am not, it's not like not my thing, you know, and he was, he was always kind of like, come on, you're studying all these books and writing. Why don't you come get your hands in the mud with me? You know, <laughs> and I'd be like, well, why don't you try reading a book, old man? Like we, you know, we'd always have like this stare down with each other. And uh, anyway, so I was out in the field one day with him and we were planting uh, blue spruce pine trees, if I remember correctly. My grandfather had a, um, he had a Christmas tree farm and he stopped selling Christmas trees, but kept planting and replanting 
uh, he had about 80 acres. So he, he planted a lot of trees and I was helping him plant these spruce trees one day. If I'm, I, I think they were blue spruce, if I remember correctly. And they were so vulnerable and like little, you know, and we were planting this big field of them and there were a certain number of feet they needed to be away from one another. And, you know, and he had the whole algorithm or, or whatever. So I was planting them and everything. And he, and I said, um, they just seem so small. It's kind of like, it just feels like the wind could just, you know, blow them right over. And he was like, well, you know, so they are vulnerable in the, in this early stage. Like if there's a deluge or and sometimes they have to be replanted. So the, um, the thing that happened was, although unbeknownst to, to him and me, the weather forecast didn't have any torrential rain, but after we planted them, there was this massive rainstorm and the rainstorm basically required that we replanted about a quarter of the field. It didn't like ruin everything, but there were some that just got like, they were just too little. They couldn't handle it. So one of the meanings of this hexagram is that when things are in a young, vulnerable and early stage, even if in seed, they contain the blueprint of the a most amazing thing, you know, the acorn contains the oak tree and potential. And each one of us as beings are born into the world and we contain this inherent potential that's rooted in our karma, maybe our genetics, whatever. But it's not just a given that that thing will become that thing. There's also free will. There's nature and what something is, and if everything goes according to the natural laws of things, that, that this will become this other, this will become this thing. It's in its nature to go and become that thing. Um, but how we nurture things, especially when they're young and vulnerable, matters a great deal. And so um, it's very important that we are conscientious. I'm thinking about this a lot lately, by the way, because I have uh, a new dog. We just got a puppy and we had two dogs. One died on the train tracks uh, back in 2016, I think it was. It was tragic. And uh, we've been thinking for a while about having another dog, especially as our, our other dog is a little lonely. It has been ever since um, our other dog died. And so we thought, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get a dog. And so we got a little cabochon. I don't know if you guys know what those are. They're real small. And my girls are just going bananas about it. It's, it's pretty cool. But I kept thinking to myself as I drew this hexagram this morning and I was just sitting meditating on it. I thought, yeah, well, you can't raise, I mean, if you want a puppy that's going to be a great member of the family, it's very important during the early stages of that puppy's life that you're having a lot of positivity, a lot of praise, a lot of positive reinforcement, setting the boundaries. This is where you pee and poop, not in my bedroom. You know, you know what I mean? So it's like we have that's the that and and children are the same way, you know. They need a good environment with healthy nourishment, not too much, you know, gross stuff going to their mind and to their body. They need love. They need, you know, and, and it's like I can see, I could see from the moment my daughter was born, literally when I was holding her, you know. Uh, I could see that there's, oh, this is, there's a being on board here. She's got, she's fully equipped with her own personality, with her own karma. It was weird. It wasn't like looking into something unformed, like a, you know, just tabula rasa, blank tablet that's just here to be written on. No, this was like a being. And she, she, there was wisdom and all sorts of stuff going on, <laughs> you know? And, and I was like, okay. So nurture matters a great deal. There's nature too, but nurture matters a great deal. And this hexagram is really 
about that in some ways. It's saying um, when things are really young and vulnerable, you have to be a number of qualities are really needed to make sure that they survive and move progressively and smoothly toward their potential, toward the ideal destination for that being or that that seed. And you know, the the qualities that this hexagram suggests for nurturing this are intelligence and resourcefulness combined with patience and a willingness to tolerate small scale gains. Think about it. Like I'm not, I can't expect that my puppy is going to be the perfect member of our family right away. And certainly not probably for the first few weeks. So, you know, is we're crate training her. Is she going to be completely content in her crate? No, but a little, and can, how long can she hold her, you know, her bladder that's going to grow a little bit more as she gets older as a puppy. So it's very, very practical wisdom. It's not like highfalutin wisdom, but it's just so important that, that we understand that there are certain stages where we have an ideal and we can see that ideal as this, you know, uh, you know, as, as a spark that's lighting us, is giving us enthusiasm. This is the new moon opposite Uranus. Oh, there's something that a revolution that I want to create. I can see where I want to go. I can see the changes that need to be made. I can see the impediments or the obstacles. And in the, that opposition with Uranus is the temptation to polarize in some way in order to get there. And we might be starting to face some of that polarization right as we're hitting the first quarter moon because Mercury and Mars are squaring Saturn. Here's a god of intelligence, speed, uh, strategy when paired with Mars, Mercury and Mars, hitting the planet that is known for limitation, restriction, patience, discipline, duty, and giving us like more of a cosmic red light than a green light. That's frustrating in the midst of a Uranian moon cycle that's got the promise of a Uranian you know, lunar eclipse coming in a week from now. So when I, it would seem totally appropriate to me that the I Ching would give us back hexagram number three, difficulty in the beginning, be intelligent, be resourceful, be patient and tolerate the process of small incremental gains. If you do this and you can enjoy this process, then pretty soon you're going to get some momentum and then it's smooth sailing. But if you force things, if you react, if you lash out, if you become uh, stubborn and or you try to bend things that are stubborn to your will, if you try to do too much, if you overcompensate, if you try to force your view or your will or your way on things or other people, all of that will kill the planet. It aborts. It, it, it aborts the young thing, whatever the young thing is. It's like miscarrying. It's like the, the, this hexagram is really like an instruction on how to be a midwife for something that's really young and has a lot of potential. If you imagine that water is wearing down a stone over eons to be perfectly smooth, right? Then you can imagine that if something is, you know, if something is going to take that long to make something that's hard and jagged into something smooth, and it takes that long. 
it's an image that we need to come back to over and over and over again. The I Ching tells us very clearly, for example, in many places, that boredom, isolation, longing, uh, doubt, restlessness, that for the wise person, they understand that these are symptoms of mastery unfolding. Working through those symptoms, being with those symptoms, not banging your head against them, not saying, I don't want to be bored, so I won't be, I'll do something. I don't want to have any kind of isolation. I don't want to be in the crock pot of an alchemical process. I don't want to long for things that I don't have because I don't like longing and discontent. I don't like doubt. I like certainty. I don't like being restless. I like to know what I'm doing and have fun. But if you, the I Ching is very clear. If you can understand, these are good signs. These are encouraging signs. And you hit problems that, and, and you, you feel bored with the process. You feel isolated within a process. You, feel, you experience longing and doubt and restlessness. And you stick with them. Then you start, to, the wise person understands, oh, those are symptoms of the thing becoming the thing or of the mastery starting to emerge. But you have to develop tolerance for those qualities. That's a big part of this hexagram. This hexagram says, don't try to do more than what you're capable of at a, a, at a too early stage, just because you can see what eventually you will be capable of. Yield, weight, and resources and proper timing will eventually come. This is like a masterclass in Mercury, Mars, and Saturn. Mercury, Mars, combined with Saturn, is intelligent, patient, resourcefulness that is content with small gains and knows that one drip at a time wears the stone down. One little incremental gain at a time gets you where you're going, creates the biggest revolutions in your life. Uh, there are, here's one thing that I love. Um, there, there, are, there is such a um, resistance to problems. There's basically like two ways that we tend to handle problems. And the I Ching, in, again, in many places, sort of speaks to this. So the first way that we handle problems is to try to rise up heroically and conquer them in order to show to myself and maybe others that I'm a problem solver. No problem's going to get me down, right? That's archetypal. So it's just one way that we approach and deal with problems. And the other way that we deal with problems tends to be, and in that view, by the way, that view of problems tends to, um, uh, if you can't solve a problem, then there's something wrong with you. You haven't figured it out yet, or you haven't overcome that block within yourself that can't, like, can't solve a problem, you know? So it's very heroic. You know, are you solving your problems? I'm solving mine. You know, it's like, it's like that. So it can be competitive and, and it can be um, self-harming uh, even. But it's one way that we deal with problems too. It's not like, that's just a way that we deal with problems. We, we, there's a problem. I'm going to rise up. I'm going to meet it and fix it and figure it out. The second place, the second way that we deal with problems, which I think is more, it's, it's far more rare but I'm, I'm more, as I age, I'm more and more drawn to it as another alternative, as an alternative or as another option. It's a different way of like approaching problems. And I'm learning to take this path a little bit more. Not perfectly. I still love to just go and ram my head into a problem and try to be all heroic in solving it. But this second option is also archetypal. 
And that's that we learn to see a problem as a meditation cushion. Like, oh, here's a problem has appeared in my life. Well, that problem is an invitation to go ahead and sit right down metaphorically on the seat of that problem and start meditating. By meditating, we don't mean meditate to solve the problem. We mean to sit and understand the nature of the problem, which is very different than understanding the solution to the problem. It's understanding something about why such problems exist in the first place. And it doesn't have to be, oh, they exist to make me stronger. They exist to make me wiser. It can just be understanding something about problems themselves. Each particular problem has a, a, you know, there's a, there's like a treasure chest filled with all sorts of glittering items in the inside of a problem. And you can't really get there unless you learn to sit with, tolerate, and be very patient to let the inside of problems show themselves. It's a different approach. It's in my humble opinion, it's far more common to see this in Eastern philosophy where things like Cohen's are, are more common, although it's not totally absent in Western philosophy either, but um, poets, for example, are amazing philosophers insofar as a lot of poets embrace this attitude about problems. A problem is something to be unpacked. A problem is something to be, uh, to produce reverie. A problem is something that um, speaks. It's something to enter into a dialogue with. It's a different way of knowing that's implied by it. So they're both archetypal ways of dealing with problems, overcoming a problem, solving it, strategizing, heroic. The discipline necessary to stick to a plan and solve a problem, win a war, whatever. Mars, Mercury, Saturn is military strategy. Mars, Mercury, Saturn is the fortitude and discipline necessary to solve a problem. But Mars, Mercury, Saturn can also be the willingness to sit down and just move into the, the narrow birth canal of a problem and see what's born out of it just by virtue of going into it, not by virtue of trying to do anything with it, just going into it. It's hard to even describe what that's like, you know? So there are two mantras, in my humble opinion, that help me and I think could help other people when it comes to looking at problems in this way. And these mantras are definitely, again, because the heroic mode tends to be the way we look at problems, these two mantras are not necessarily going to be popular for a lot of people. And that's why I kept struggling to record this talk earlier today, because I didn't know quite how to address all of this. There's two, so two mantras. I probably do not know what I need. That's the first mantra. I probably don't know what I need. Heck, you could even go further and say, I don't know what I need. But if that's too dangerous or feels like not quite right, you could say, maybe I don't know what I need, or I probably don't know what I need or something like that. And the second one is related, which is I may not know what is best for myself or for others. I, I may not know what is best. Now, of course, there's going to be situations in our lives where this is not appropriate. You have to, you have to know, and you have to make quick decisions. And so not, this is not like a one size fits all solution. There's going to be places in our life where you know, we need to make judgments. We have to be very quick and understanding and decisive about what we need or how to act. Or So I get all that. But this in this mode of relating to problems, which is different than heroically trying to solve them, just 
being with them. There's space for both in our lives. We can do both. And if we're going to do both, then these mantras can really help us for a few reasons. A few reasons. Let's consider, let's just zoom out and think about our existence, right? And this is all echoed by what ancient astrologers said about why we do astrology in the first place. I don't know how I got here. If I just, you know, look at my situation and look at what ancient astrologers said about our situation. And I also, I, I draw on my own experiences, you know, 10 years from drinking ayahuasca. I don't know how I got here. I don't remember where I was before I came into this body. I don't think many people do. Maybe some of the, you know, overlord shamans out there, you know, have like some like really clear sense of where they were fine. But um, I don't. I have a kind of like a partial amnesia. I'm not sure how or why I came into the family that I did at this time in history and this kind of body. I don't really understand why I'm here on this planet. I don't really understand how many planets there are, or how big the universe is, or I don't really understand where I'm going after I die. I don't even really understand most of the time how and why I've wanted the things that I have. I don't even really fully understand how I came to be living the life that I'm living. If I'm really deeply honest and I sit with it, there's a lot that I really don't know or understand about life itself or my own life. That doesn't mean I don't know anything, but it means there's a lot that I, there's, I'm not clear about, you know? And so that's a problem. It's also, if you think about it, like I'm coming into this body and I'm going to live and love and lose and hurt and eventually die. And I'm going to lose people that I love too. I'm going to love deeply. I'm going to lose. So some, my, my soul, I believe very deeply ayahuasca. This is one thing ayahuasca showed me that I just can't unsee for myself, which is that we're, we are all eternal divine souls. We're little sparks. We're little Atmans. We're little sparks of God. We're little Jivas. So I know that I'm an eternal being that somehow decided to come and have this very problematic, overwhelming, confusing, and entirely, you know, at least for me so far, very beautiful experience as well. Life is a problem, but apparently it's one that we're all choosing. Apparently it's one that all like beings everywhere are somehow choosing or reality itself has created and chosen. It's, happening, you know? So, and what do, what do I, how do I, my mode of relating to it at this point in my life has been, I'm going to just be with this problem. I'm going to be with the problem of love and loss and pain and suffering and impermanence. And I'm going to just be with the experience of striving and living and ambitions and failures and ego and, and also the kind of partial amnesia that I have. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know how I'm going to live with all of it. I'm just going to live with all of it and see what beauty comes out, see what I learn, see what's here. That's the macrocosmic situation that the soul finds itself in. It was for this reason that people like James Hillman, Carl Jung, so many great psychological thinkers, um, also who did astrology, said, look, the soul loves problems. You can tell because it came here to experience lots and lots of them, including mortality itself. So if you're an eternal being there's, and there's nothing ultimately at stake, problems are different. They're, they mean something different. Having a problem is like having a puzzle. Having a problem is like having a piece of art to look at. Having a problem is something that um, can give a lot to us. 
I know that that probably sounds really trite when considering how terrifying and horrifying and painful some problems can be, right? And what can you say? The only thing we can really say is that apparently the soul loves those two because they're here. So when we consider how much the soul likes a problem and that for some, for some reason, the soul learns, grows, experiences love, bliss, intimacy, divinity through problems, then we can understand that one way of dealing with problems is to try to solve them because problems are bad and conquering the problem is the point. And another view is we can also just experience problems and see what's inside of them. And in order to do that, there's going to be, again, times in life where a heroic approach is needed. But in order to do this other way of relating to problems, we need to step back and remember the overall situation that we find ourselves in here. We have to have a, a 20,000 foot view. One of the reasons I think people are really allergic to this kind of view is because people think that um, to have this kind of 20,000 foot view means that you are going to take yourself uh, out of embodied existence. Well, I want to be embodied. I want to be here. I want to move through all of these things. I don't want to check out of them. No, we're, we're not. We're, you, why can't you do both? Do we lack that much imagination that we think that we can't be embodied and simultaneously have objectivity? That we can't see a big picture of existence and the, sh the shape of our experience and the amnesiac experiences that we find ourselves in existentially while also being fully in our experiences? Why can't we? I think it's a real lack of imagination personally to say that we couldn't. It's always been my view. So if I say, if I, if I want to get into something deep and nonlinear, something eternal, if I want to experience the multidimensionality of my problems, then I have to do two things. One, I have to start saying, maybe I don't know exactly what I need. Because if I know what I need, then usually if I think I know what I need, then of course I know how to solve every problem. Or I know exactly what the nature of every problem is because it's all, you know, it's relative to what I need in a situation or what I think someone else needs. And that's why the second one is I may not know what is best. I may not know what I need. I may not know what others need, in other words. And it's not that there'll never be a time where we can't say, well, I know what my needs are, or I know where someone else's needs are. It's that, what, how does it change our psyche in our relationship with life and people and problems themselves with existence itself, when we say, I'm not always sure that I know what I need. I'm not always sure that I know what is best. When that becomes a practice, people, you know, again, people will think that this is a, these are paralyzing statements. Oh, you can't say something. You can't know what you need, or you can't know what's best, or that it takes away your sovereignty. The ever present mantra of modernity. I'm sovereign. I'm a little monarch inside, but if these statements are just honest, if they're just honest assessments of our situation, cosmic, they take into consideration a cosmic perspective, then they do something amazing for us. For example, when you say, I'm not sure what I need, you take that posture with reality. It's as though reality sees that and says, oh, look at that. Look at the posture psychically that person is assuming that they're not sure exactly what they need. It's like someone's knocking on a door. And if you knock on a door, people will answer the door. And so if someone answers the door and says, oh, you don't know what you need. 
let me give you three or four different ideas or ways of thinking about what you need. And then suddenly you're flooded with wisdom and you can make a choice about what you need based on a much fuller understanding. And where does that, where does that, where did that wisdom come, came from? Where, where did it come from? It came from the willingness to say, well, I don't know what I need. What do I need? I'd love some guidance, right? And then reality can be a, a relational, multidimensional experience of truth where our needs are fluid things that are being informed because we want to have a relationship with everything else. We don't want to live in little sovereign monarch vacuums. So the other one, I may not know what is best, meaning I, I don't know what's best in a situation. I don't know what's best for this person or, you know, uh, that doesn't have to, you know, uh, completely disable us from being able to make decisions or be a parent or make tough ethical decisions or something like that. It's a practice that we come into regularly. And if we do it, then suddenly, again, it's like a knock is at the door. Oh, you don't know what's best. Let me flood you with an ecology of wisdom and truth. Let me help you start to see truth in its multidimensionality. And if we have those practices in our lives, I don't always know what's best. I don't always know what I need. Alongside of having to live and make choices and make judgments and, you know, doing our best, then I think that we start to have a different relationship with problems. Along with our heroic model of overcoming and conquering problems, because I have the answer, I know what's best, I know what I need, da, da, da. That's never going anywhere because it's archetypal. It's just, it's a one way that we have of relating to problems and the universe condones it, blesses it, says, yes, this is a way of relating to problems. And there's another way. And we are smart enough, wise enough, and imaginative enough beings to have both in our lives at the same time. And the other way of relating to problems means that we have to enter into a space where we say, I don't know what I need and I don't always know what's best. And that, if that's a practice, you'll be amazed at how fluidly you can move through conquering and overcoming problems in heroic mode and also seeing every problem as your meditation cushion. Now, why, do I, why am I kind of laboring all of this today? Because we have a Uranian moon cycle that's aiming us towards some kind of ideal, but also with the temptation to split and polarize. And where they're splitting and polarizing, there tends to be heroes and villains. And then the heroic mode of consciousness that wants to lift us up and overcome a problem through polarization, fighting, dominating, beating the opposition down, tends to take over. And sometimes that's just not the only narrative available to us. And this first quarter moon with the Mercury, Mars, Saturn, dynamic can give us an alternative way of problem solving. If we want to go into a different mode of consciousness, or at least pair it with the inevitable heroic mission that destiny might have us on, can we at least pair the heroic problem solving with some contemplative uh, space? I think it's really important. And that's certainly what the I Ching points to as well, because it says, oh, you want to get to this ideal in the future? Well, things are really young and they're very vulnerable at this stage. And you're going to need to admit your youthfulness, admit your immaturity, admit your lack of resources, admit you can't get there fast and be patient, be intelligent, be resourceful, get used to things like boredom, doubt, longing, restlessness. Because if you don't, then you'll, the thing will probably die in the process because you'll react, you'll force things, you'll lash out, you'll overcompensate, you know, and there's a reason why, for example, I would, this is just my personal opinion. It's worth about two cents. So there's a reason why in our culture, especially in the modern West, that the most dominant form of entertainment, as far as I can tell, are comic book movies. 
You know what I mean? Like they're all, and I loved comic books. I had hundreds of them as a kid and I, I, I will watch them sometimes. They have great, sometimes they have really great deep philosophical stuff in them too. So I'm not trying to diss them, but it's hero mode. Our way of looking at life, at politics is this party versus that party, this news channel versus that channel. It tends to be like that. It tends to be very polarized and it tends to be very much about smashing your opposition. It's the WWF of culture and politics in our media streams quite frequently. And so I don't speak to this as someone who's so naive as to think that this mode of consciousness doesn't have a reason for existing or there aren't times and seasons where it's necessary. It's so pervasive. How couldn't it be, you know, but at the same time, as someone devoted to contemplative practices in my life and also having to just deal with, you know, shitty diapers and problem and like real just problems you have to overcome. I feel like this space needs some advocating. I feel like this, this, uh, space of, I don't know what's best for you. I don't know what's best for other people. I am trying the best to do it for myself. And I'm having a hard time sometimes that that space is not, it's, it's humble, but it's not just humble. It's the key to the kingdom. If you, if you enter into those spaces as mantras, you will find that there's just treasure packed into every problem that we face. And we, we start stacking together some of those victories, the victory of what if I've discovered, um, I've discovered a variegated mandala of, of wisdom through sitting with some of my problems a little bit longer, through entering into deeper, um, just a little bit of like a, a, um, like a stubborn uh, uh, reluctance to, to, to come to conclusions. You know, things start giving more and more and more. As soon as we shut up, you know what I mean? With all of our certainty, it turns out that we're living in an ecology of truth that wants to come in and share stuff with us. So good stuff for Mercury, Mars, and Saturn, and uh, <laughs> probably came out in a Mercury, Mars, Saturn-like way as well. So uh, I'm, you can see the planets are like, they're, they're grabbing me as I'm talking. All right. Anyway, so I hope that you guys enjoyed today's talk. I, as promised, I wanted to ask uh, you guys to throw out some uh, live, we're, we're open up some space for live Q&A. So if you guys have questions about anything astrological at all that you want me to, you know, talk about for a little bit, I am happy to do that. So uh, I, the only thing I won't do is look at people's charts because that's just, it's just way too involved for me. But if you have general questions about astrology, I would love to hear them right now. Feel free to drop them into the chat box. It's going to be interesting next week, by the way, when this comes full circle and we then look at the Iranian full moon eclipse, that, that should be really interesting. Okay. I'm looking at some of the comments here. Uh, this is all good to hear. Someone said problems are resources for creative self-expression. Nice. Loving that you guys, I love all the questions that you guys have, or the comments that you guys have made. Uh, love the purple. Yeah, I, this is, I just love purple. I was like, kind of maybe going to go back to my blue from my previous office. And I was like, nah, I'm going to, I'm going to go purple. Let's just go for it. So, okay. I don't see any questions in the chat box so far. I'm going to scroll down and see if anybody has them. Oh, okay. Lots. 
Good, I missed them. How do we deal with these Mars Mercury square energy? Uh, well, I think that's what I just talked about, um, <laughs> but I don't know. Um, uh, I mean, one of the things that I would suggest right now is be careful about trying to ram things through or like bending things to your will or getting too mentally rigid about stuff. Um, it's a good time for, I, I would say it's a good time for, if you draw, for example, if you're someone that can get into some kind of stream of consciousness with an artistic expression, I think it's a good counterpoint to the, some of the stiffness of Mercury, Mars, and Saturn, but also it can be a very productive energy that is, is helps to concentrate. And one of the, you know, when I was in ayahuasca world, one of the names for a, uh, a ceremony that we had was they were called concentrations and you would literally just sit and concentrate your mind while having imbibed ayahuasca and uh it's you know it's profound um the concentration of the mind um you know upon an object or upon a problem uh does not mean that you're trying to solve it it means you're focusing on it with um a light but persistent touch and that kind of concentration oh man there's gold in there i'm i'm, I'm for real all right, anyway, um, do you think we risk staying in a loop if we don't take this opportunity to raise the collective conscious? Okay, this is, you know, you've got me on a Mercury-Mars day, so I've just got to tell you the truth. I don't think the collective consciousness needs raising. I just don't. I, 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 I get people, like, I get that idea, and I respect it too. Maybe I'm wrong. I could be dead wrong, and you're right. And you're like, hey, why don't we raise the collective consciousness? And I'm, I'm like, well, it doesn't need raising, and, and I'm just totally wrong about that. But I don't personally think it needs raising. And I feel like this idea of the collective consciousness needing raising strikes me as an archetypal idea and not to be taken literally. In other words, raising consciousness is like going bowling in the scope of eternity. It's like, it's something you can do, but it, you know, it's like consciousness can raise and fall. Consciousness can move in lots of different directions. You just have to be careful about thinking about linear progress too much as like the grand narrative. It's a narrative. And it's not one that I'm particularly captured by, but that doesn't mean it's not real. It's not worthy. It's just, I just feel like it's kind of overrated. That's me personally. And I don't mean any offense to you by that. And I, I certainly respect where you're coming from. Uh, I'll keep going. You guys, you know, you're going to, you're going to get me in trouble here with Mercury and Mars today. I'm just going to start, I'm going to start getting myself in trouble. All right, let's see. Uh, I'm trying to find where these questions left off. Sorry. This sounds very basic, but could you quickly differentiate between squares and oppositions? Squares of the nature of Mars and opposition is of the nature of Saturn. Squares tend to produce action, which could be something that is understood also as conflict, but action or conflict. Whereas Saturn tends to create polarizations that have more to do with conflicted images of or different differing ideals of the way something should be. Um, that's a, just a quick, really quick definition. It's something I go into a lot more detail in my course. Um, Vedic versus ancient astrology, please. Well, they're both ancient. Uh, Vedic astrology, you know, comes from the Vedic 
tradition of wisdom and uh, ancient Hellenistic astrology has is kind of a syncretic tradition. It comes from like Babylon, Mesopotamia, Egypt, Greek philosophy, and uh, shares much in common with Indian astrology, both techno technically and in, in sort of theoretically. Um, they're different in some ways. So at, so at some point, the zodiac split in terms of which measurement system is being used. Um, they're both they're both very similar in the way that they approach prognostication. Um, what do you think about general eclipse season birth charts? Does the sun change in its significations? Not sure I understand the question. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, maybe you could re-articulate it for me. How does the superior position of Mars differ from last Mars Saturn square in January? Oh, I'd, I'd have to go back and kind of look at it more carefully. It's a great question, Renee. Um, I, I couldn't say without taking a better look at it. Uh, let's see. Um, what could be expected from an eclipse in the mutable signs versus fixed signs? Well, mutable signs are, you know, they were called double-bodied signs originally, or if they were of two natures. And so they tend to talk about transitional states and um, fixed signs are going to point toward uh, changes that are longer, deeper, slower, um, especially in the feminine signs. Those are more, they were, they were said that the feminine signs were slower and more organic to develop or show their significations. So um, yeah, I would say that you're gonna see longer lasting changes. Like the eclipses in double-bodied signs tend to be more, um, about transitional or liminal states that are coming in and creating change. These have to do with like the, the deeper, more fixed, durable patterns in your life changing. For example, if you have eclipses in your first house in a fixed sign, you might see long lasting changes to your diet or your body taking place. So just, I mean, just as a simple, it could, it could be any area of the chart though. Um, Other than when transits aspect your chart, do you think they only really affect you if you have those placements connected in the natal chart? No, I think that people who also um, have spiritual practices, any kind of contemplative or meditative practice who track the planets and who are used to feeling the karmic weather are sometimes a little bit more tuned in, even if it's not necessarily touching things in your birth chart. Uh, that's why I recommend my students take up that, that kind of practice. Uh, What's your dissertation on the astro world tragedy? D did an astrologer die? I don't know. I don't know what's happening in astrology world right now. So I'm not, I'm not familiar with what you're talking about. Unfortunately, I hope nothing bad happened. Um, let's see. If you're talking about something else, remember you were talking to someone who does not, I do not digest the WWF of news. <laughs> that was just me being a jerk, but I'm serious. I just, I don't, I don't watch it. I find out about stuff and then I tend to go and do research once things somehow come across my radar. If lots of people are talking about something on social media. I tend to see it and then I go and read a bunch of different things. And, but I, otherwise I just, I absolutely don't watch the news. Um, not suggesting that that's for everyone. That's just, that's just me. Okay, let me just be honest with you because I get I get shit about this from people all the time. Just speaking really bluntly, people are always like, "Oh, you don't watch the news." Well, you're not using your platform to influence the millions of people who think that you're some kind of guru or whatever. I'm like, first of all, 
I, you know, I'll, I'm going to talk about whatever I want to talk about on my YouTube channel. And mostly what I want to talk about is just daily spiritual life. Like that's it. That's, that's what I'm, that's what I like. I like storytelling about planets and symbols and how to watch for them in your life and how to hopefully have a little bit more peace, love, you know, <laughs> how to stay home in our hearts. And that's it. That's my focus. I, I'm trying to step back, especially since I became a monk, I'm just stepping away from trying to make everything about how my knowledge can save the world and all of its current problems. I just, I can't, there's lots of prophets out there, lots of social cultural prophets, nothing against them. And, and if you find people who are speaking to you in that way, God bless you. Seriously. That's just not me. Um, but one of the things that, um, you know, that people uh, will, they'll often not know, like, just like, assume that me not watching the news is also because, you know, maybe, I, I don't know, like I have um, some, some view, some very particular view that, that I'm trying to indoctrinate other people. Like, I don't care if you guys watch the news, but for me, I'll be very specific. And one of the reasons that I stopped watching the news, because I get asked this all the time and I should just say it. When I watch the news, it makes me angry. I'm just being real. It doesn't matter what. I could be watching anything. I could be watching any channel. I could be whatever. And the news tends to make me angry and I start feeling divisiveness inside of my heart and inside of my mind. And I will tell you that it came to a space where I realized that I was not being a good father. I was not being a good husband. I was not being a good dog owner. I mean, all the stuff in my life that requires me to be a loving, kind, decent person were being taxed and stressed because I was giving my time and energy and attention to divisiveness in the news. It doesn't matter who or what or where the divisiveness was coming from. That's just what it was generating in me. So on a certain level, it's like, you know, if you're, if you're an alcoholic, keep alcohol away from you. And for me, it's like Mars, Mars and Gemini in my chart. I just have to keep that like really super combative stream of like mental, uh, you know, mental sorcery. I just have to keep it away from me. I have to focus my mind on really peaceful things um, and really simple tasks that I can do to make the environment around me a better place to use my skills and resources to help others in a way that doesn't launch me down the path of hatred. And that's my own boundary. That's I'm doing that for myself. So because it's not something that I'm strong enough to go and put myself in and not turn into someone that I don't like. That's just the truth. I'm not strong enough to expose myself to that regularly and not have it affect the way that I think or talk to people or whatever. So I took myself out of it one of the big reasons was because of that. And that was upon the recommendation of my several of my spiritual mentors who I talk with regularly over a long period of time. So if you don't like that about me or my channel or whatever, if you're like, oh, I wish that he would talk about the politics or what's happening in the world or whatever, I, I, there are so many astrologers out there who do that and that you probably would resonate with in, in the way that they see things or whatever. It's just not what you're going to find on my channel. So and, and God bless you. You know, it's, it's nothing against you. If you can go through that and you're engaged in a way that's healthy and balanced and it's good for you, that's awesome. It's just not, it's just not something that happens for me. So that's it. Okay. And I still would love someone to fill me in on what this astro, if there's something bad happened in the astrology world. 
you just mentioned that you felt grabbed by the planets at the end of your talk. Is that something you feel often? Would love to hear more. Oh yeah, you can tell. Like t the fact that I'm just like having this big moment about why I don't watch the news and blah blah blah. It's very that's very much you you can you can work with the energies. You can know that they're there and then try to sort of move with them rather than being totally taken over by them. That's that's uh, something you get more and more of a feel for as you study astrology. In in my humble opinion. Okay, um, let's see. Ha, Achuta, by the way, you were my first thought when I woke up on Sunday AM, I had a feeling your wife was pregnant. Was it a puppy? <laughs> yeah, well, she's definitely, she's definitely not pregnant, uh, but she definitely did have a puppy baby. So, <laughs> so she's, her and my girls are really stoked about that. And she's a really cute dog. Maybe I'll bring her on sometime. Because uh, she's about, she's like, well, these cabochon dogs are really little. They're really cute. Um, okay. How is a quincunx different from no aspect? It, it, in ancient astrology, a quincunx doesn't exist. So it's not an aspect. And we call what typically we refer to as a quincunx would be called an aversion. And there's a specific meaning of an aversion. It means that two planets aren't seeing one another by their whole sign places. And it has a specific interpretive meaning. Um, let's see here. I'm going, going along. Do you take into account the great attractor that other astrologers are addressing in the current energies of the stars and planets? No, it's not something I work with as, uh, like as a symbol generally. Um, I, I work with, it's kind of like this. I always try to tell people whatever you're going to work with, whether it's asteroids or outer planets or fixed stars, the traditional seven, the lots, uh, great attractors, you know, imaginary points, what I, I mean, you know what I mean? Like whatever you're working with, um, it's, it's like different kinds of tarot decks, right? And just because you use more or less um, like items or symbols doesn't mean that you're doing better or worse astrology. So I personally take the view for my own practice and the way that I teach that most people struggle learning astrology and saying things that are really concise and accurate um, because they don't start with an economy of craft. You're not taught how to use really basic things in really traditional ways so that you learn like a consistency of craft language. Instead, you're given like a billion asteroids and like all these things and, you know, and everything just sort of feels sort of soupy and it's always just this kind of epic ride of like energies and, blah. and I, for me, like I have to have like, I have to pare things down and really articulate differences between things. How are these things really different? And, and for me, I need to do that with like a smaller set of symbols. And then gradually I can kind of like bring more in uh, because I want really deep, intimate familiarity with the symbols that I'm working with. So for me, I always tell my students, like, it's cool if you want to use things like the great attractor or, you know, the galactic center, you know, the vertex, Lilith, you know, Chiron, all, you know, whatever. Uh, but, you know, if you, for example, I think it, I think that if it's making your, practice more soupy and you're less able to prognosticate very specifically about things, um, then, you know, you might want to pair it back for a little while and then maybe add them in later. For example, my first year program, we only study traditional planets. 
We only study the traditional seven and the nodes of the moon. Whole sign houses all Hellenistic theory. Year two, after giving you a full concentrated year of just relearning the basics in a way that most people have never learned them, then in year two, we add in the outer planets and we talk about what they mean and what, what role they can play in delineations. And most people feel like, wow, I never really learned astrology in some ways until I took out a lot of excess stuff and just focused on the basics. But that's not that approach isn't for everyone, but that's how I do it. Uh, let's see. Is someone who is starting out in their astrology practice and conducting readings for family and friends, how would you approach a reading for someone who doesn't fully know astrology? Um, well, first of all, make sure that they want a reading themselves, that they have a reason for approaching you for a reading. Because if they don't, and you're just trying to like give them a reading, it probably won't work very well. Um, that's my first thing. The second thing is don't use a lot of technical jargon. Try to explain some things so that people know that you're using um, a logical system, like this planet, this house means this or that, a little bit of that, but um, don't make it overly technical so that people get overwhelmed by the jargon. They, you, want to get, you want to distill things to the essence and explain a few things to them. Explain what a sun means or a moon or something like that, and then explain the house position. And a little bit of that is okay, but don't get too technical. And then keep it short. First reading, don't give too much bite size. Just do a sun, moon rising or something like that. Give, give like 30 minutes for a first reading and try to get someone interested in astrology through the experience that you help them create. And, and that will usually serve people much better and because it'll then create the opportunity for a second, a third reading, maybe taking up an interest in astrology. Remember, astrology is not just good for the information it gives. For most people, astrology, if they really, if a reading really hits, they become interested in astrology. And astrology itself as a spiritual practice is the real point of astrology, even more than the readings. You'll find that after you study astrology long enough, most astrologers really stop looking at their charts very often. That's because for astrologers who spend a lot of time steeped in astrology, you just start seeing things astrologically and living in a kind of astrological space. And that's enough. You don't necessarily need to obsess over your own chart all the time. Maybe you look once a month or, you know, there's some big transits going on a little bit more or whatever, but you're, you're, you're living astrology. And, and that's, so astrology is kind of like helping someone learn yoga in a way. It's like, it's like helping someone develop a spiritual practice. So the first experience you give someone should be something that is like fun and memorable and not too heavy and not too jargony and, and stuff like that. Anyway, um, do you have any archetypal mythological stories that come to mind regarding Mars in its own strongest nature squaring Saturn? who's also in, in its own sign, right? Um, nothing that comes to mind off the top of my head. Maybe something will, and I'll come back to it if a story pops into my head. Uh, okay. Uh... Oh gosh, I just lost it. Okay. People died at a concert. People are saying it's an energy harvesting. Ugh, I don't like that. But sorry. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know if you believe that or not. I don't even know, really know what that is. It just doesn't, it sounds a little weird. It sounds a little, where do people come up with this stuff? 
<laughs> I'm such a gr I'm just a grumpy old man, Mars squaring Saturn. Uh, how do stelliums affect the houses they are in? That's a good one. Uh, yeah, just there's if there's a big focus, if there's a big stellium in a house, it's going to bring those topics of the house uh, to bear on the life in a very powerful way, which means if you have a stellium in the seventh, then you know, marriage and relationships are going to be very important. I tend to look at stelliums in terms of the way that they activate and amplify the topics of the house that they're in. That's the first step that I would recommend. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, it was a it was a rap concert where a hundred people were injured and eight people died. Oh God, yeah, that sounds brutal. Okay, I'm going down a little bit. I'm just, I just totally lost the plot with where I was in the scrolling. I'm really sorry for people, you know, if I'm missing a question. I'm just scrolling back to uh, where things go uh, in the, where things are at right currently. I mean, can you speak to astrological anxiety? Well, it's, it's inevitable. A anxiety is inevitable itself. It's like a part of life. Even the Buddha said, you know, everything's made of fear. But whether that fear is, you know, debilitating and something that is traumatizing and, you know, awful or evil or whatever, versus if there's some kind of sacred fear and trembling, it's a huge difference, right? So um, I think sometimes, even though I am not at all a, uh, we hosted many trauma therapy workshops and healers at our yoga studio. And I'm a big believer in uh, rehabilitating from trauma. I saw that for 10 years working with ayahuasca. I also feel like we have to be careful that we don't think that um, there is some ideal state that we should be in. That life is sort of traumatizing, in other words. It, there's, there's, a, there's an element of trauma, fear, um, and the, the universe is, is ready to initiate us into the subterranean, darker elements of life, uh, the more naive we become. And so we just, just keep that in mind. So I'm, I'm all about, um, you know, healing from trauma and, but I'm not about, um, trying to, uh, what's the word? I don't know, know what I'm looking, looking for, but just anything that would sort of suggest that you know you can you can you could you can or that you should permanently do away with fear or anxiety itself because i feel like um i'm just an advocate for reality right and for what's all of what is here and uh trying to understand right relationship with everything that's here what is a right relationship with anxiety an aligned sort of sacred relationship with anxiety or fear look like we can't fully protect the world from trauma or anxiety or fear um, but we can certainly uh try to create better healthier like you know in many civilizations initiations rites of passage these kinds of things that expose us to and teach us how to move through trauma, fear, anxiety. We're just, we're really lacking those nowadays. And was it not a great culture of health? We don't live in a, a culture that really even 
says here, let's be proactive about your health. Let's be healthy. We tend to be very reactive. It's always about healing something that got damaged rather than embodying ways of proactively, you know, how can we be proactive about our health so that when traumas come, we can move through them in a way that doesn't require, um, you know, such a, such dramatic, intense need for healing. That's a big idea, of course. And I'm not, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's still lots of injustice and cruelty in the world that, you know, is just going to, it's going to need dramatic efforts to heal or, or work with. But I think there's just like a, a low grade sort of culture of like um, responding, reacting to trauma and anxiety um, rather than, than being proactive about how to live a life that can be better equipped for the reality of it. If that makes sense. I see that a lot just in, you know, in practice with people and in, in do, teaching yoga for a long time and stuff like that. And it's a difficult situation. It's, it's difficult. There's a lot of complex factors that create disease in the world, isn't there? So, but astrological anxiety is something that you, I mean, you, for example, if you study astrology, you know, what kind of transit is coming in your own chart, you know, a year, two years before it happens. So you get to freak out about it the whole time. And then you get to experience the thing. And then when you experience it, you, you move through it and it's not at all what you anticipated. It's nowhere near as good as you thought it was going to be. It's nowhere near as bad as you thought it was going to be or whatever. And that, that process of having the anxiety positively or negatively about a transit, Jupiter to your midheaven, Pluto to your Venus, whatever it might be, then you live through it and you go like, okay, I have some wisdom now about archetypes, about symbols, about my life. And so if you stick with the anxiety, don't let it overwhelm you. Don't become too obsessive or paranoid. Don't let it, you know, really eat at you. The anxiety is part of the learning process. It's a really important part of it. At the same time, for some people, it's going to be something that contributes to like real health problems, you know, mental or emotional health problems. And people will say, I have so much anxiety when I study astrology or do astrology. Do you think I should keep doing it? I'm like, well, no, not if it's like, if it's something that's like triggering panic attacks and like real, if you have, if you're on taking medication for anxiety or, you know what I mean? Like you, you have real struggle going on with anxiety, then don't do stuff that makes it worse. You know what I mean? So it's, but for people who are like, you know, it's just garden variety, astrological anxiety is a very normal part of the learning curve with astrology. It's part of how pu- the spiritual sort of purification happens um, in the same way that we you know when you drink ayahuasca, purgatives and Ayurveda, stuff like that, they, they can be harrowing, but the experience is also very purifying and done in the right way. That's what initiations, rites of passages, and many different forms of spiritual practice or techniques of ecstasy are meant to do. They're meant to stimulate an experience of the existential dread and awe and beauty all at once, and then help you move through it so that you're, you're, you're more equipped to deal with that in the microcosms of everyday life. Astrology is no exception in, in that regard, I think. Okay, anyway. Uh, is it true that when finding a poorly aspected planet, you look to the opposite sign for a solution? No, that's really creative, but no, that's not like a rule. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I ever I, I'm clear now that the Astro World thing was about a concert that happened. That sounds awful. 
Um, how do you see the eclipse season carrying the story that's been started in this moon cycle and with the Saturn Uranus aspects? Well, that's the thing that I talked about, I think in the first part of today's talk, you may want to rewatch it, but I'd also just say in, in general that, um, you know, there it's a, it's kind of a testing moment for the revolutionary impulse that was seeded at the beginning of the cycle. And I think there's the, the opportunity to get really polarized over it versus, you know, what I was kind of talking about today, which is being resourceful and patient and intelligent right now should lead to a much better result by the full moon in a week. Um, I can't go through all 12 signs. It would just take too long. Um, planets are so influential. How do we convince others that they actually affect us on earth from Debs? Uh, that's a great question. Um, planets are not influential. This is, I know, like, I'm not trying to like, planets aren't influential. They are symbols. So you, it's really important to understand like where the, the, the early way of thinking about planets is divinatory in nature. They're like the hands of a clock. You know, that example is given a lot. The planets are like the hands of a clock. They don't make time happen. They just tell you about the passage of time. So planets are not causing things to happen and they're not sending or beaming influences. They are indicators of archetypal fields unfolding in time. And those archetypal fields carry a huge diversity of energies in them or with them. So the planets point to archetypal fields that unfold in time through variegated energies. And they're just like the symbols of the clock in the sky that's showing you how they're unfolding. They're not causing like anything to happen. Um, so that's the first thing. They are influential, but they're not the influencers. They're, they're pointing to what influences are manifesting. And we don't know exactly how to, there's no, um, we haven't reached a place yet where we have real, like in Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, karma is deeply mysterious, even to the wisest of sages. So in terms of the unfolding of these fields, what are archetypes? Where do they come from? How do their energies disperse and, and move through physical, the manifest physical universe? Deeply mysterious. So science isn't anywhere close to approaching this because they're not even interested in it. This, this uh, basic framework that ancient astrology purports, right? So, uh, the second part of your question, how do we convince others that they actually affect us on earth? Don't, don't, don't try. That would be my advice, right? It's like, you know, in the Republic, Plato's Republic, the allegory of the cave, people who are searching for the light of wisdom, who are, who want to understand the gods, the archetypes within themselves, within the world, they first have to go through a process of unchaining themselves, seeing the reflection of the light on the wall, climbing into the light of the higher world and understanding things as they are. It might sound a little dualistic. It's really not. This is co-present. This is here with us. It's, it's, it's as above, so below. The, the gods are here with us in every cell of our body. It's, it's all co-present. There's no literal climbing out of a prison. Earth is not a prison. It's not like that. But that process of discovering 
that there are such things as archetypes that they move in seasons and that the planets reflect something of them. So do tarot cards. So do runes, you know, lots of different systems, uh, tortoise shells heated, you know, until they crack in a certain way, liver entrails. The universe is teeming with archetypal language. And it's just, I mean, birds in nature that land on a fence post as you're walking. There's the world is teeming with symbols that speak truth about the connection between events in an a-causal manner. So, you know, it's, it's pretty complicated stuff really. Um, because it's a causal also suggests that time isn't exactly linear, right? So some of that's, you know, pretty mind blowing. So, um, when you kind of get into all of this stuff, the natural thing that's going to happen is that you are going to alienate yourself or feel alienated from people who are locked into the idea that all that is real is that whatever is, is temporary and usually most, you know, kind of fleeting and um, usually material. Material doesn't mean a bad thing. It just means like my bank statement, my looks, my, you know, just stuff that's like very, um, you know, it's not like people in the cave are not looking to experience truth or beauty with a capital T or B, right? They're, they're like, look, don't go wandering off in the weeds there, you know, Sherlock, you know, like, <laughs> so, so yeah, the, I think the main thing is to, to understand that if you go back into the cave, and try to convince people, hey, look, there's these archetypes, there's these forms, there's this numinous world that we're living in that's sparkling with divinity everywhere, and its patterns are moving and intelligent, and you can tap into them and learn about them and study them, and you can, it's like there's a karmic weather channel, and nobody knows about it, don't you want to see it? You go back in, and, and you take that approach with people, and they'll, they'll smack you, right? <laughs> so, and that's what Plato says, he said they, they might even kill you. So, don't try to convince people. Let people be attracted to what they're attracted to and let people be attracted to divine things because they see a light coming from you. And the light coming from you is not the effort that you make to convince them. It's the dedication you have to the path that you're on. It's the dedication that you have to your spiritual life and your practices. And if you just stay focused on those things, if all of us do that work the best we can, other people are naturally attracted. Everyone is way, you know, it's like, I, and I see this all the time. You say this and the, a, lot, a lot of times the immediate response is like, well, there are problems more pressing than that, my laddie. You know, <laughs> there, there are problems here that deserve immediate attention and you need to go and save the world. And, you know, like we were saying earlier, no offense anyone, like raise the consciousness. Eh, I don't think so. In the scope of eternity, sun's going to burn out eventually. I know it sounds very cynical. I'm not being cynical. I don't think that reality needs me to do anything. I don't think, I think reality has it under control. I trust reality. And I trust that if I follow this path, that light just starts emanating around us like little halos and other souls start following. That's what I've observed in my life. So that's the, that's the way I live. It's not the answer for everyone. I understand it. And some people will be called to like, you know, take off on, on crusades, you know, and, and, and there's no problem with that either. I just, you know, I, I personally feel like you don't need to convince anyone of anything. You just, just be yourself. 
Talk about wisdom, talk about divinity, talk about the soul, talk about archetypes, practice them, imbue them in, in your lives, love people, become a better person the best you can, but don't try to save the world, you know, just do your best and then see what happens. And um, uh, to me, that's, um, you know, some people also may say, well, that's, uh, I don't know, like that's, uh, I've heard people say that's a position of privilege. Well, I don't know. I've heard this teaching from the poorest saints in the world from all different traditions and cultures. You know, I've been in many different places in the world and, and studied with lots of different religious and spiritual teachers. And most of the people espousing this message are the humblest, kindest, and least pretentious people I've ever met. I may not be, but they certainly were not. So at any rate... Um, I think we'll end here for today. I'll just see if there's anything else that looks like it might be a good like final, like a cap. Um, huh. Man, it's so funny. Like I'll see a question, it'll look like a good one. And then it's just gone. And it's like, whoa, people must be typing so many things that I can't see. I'm going to see if I can find this one that someone asked. It seemed like it was a good one. Uh, what's the earth's archetype? That's a good question. The earth is the central archetype of the mandala people are you know will always say that too they'll be like doesn't the earth have a place like shouldn't the earth as a symbol like have a place yeah it's the most central symbol of them all the sublunary sphere that we live in is the sphere of coming to be and passing away it is understood as the plane of of material existence where souls are coming into forms and having experiences and it's the it's the it is the um, medium through which everything is actually occurring that as astrology is reflecting or commenting on. So the archetype of earth is the archetype of embodied experience. Um, central to the whole thing. Uh, uh, uh. If we lived on another planet, what would earth represent in astrology? That would be the place where you go to Burger King. They kill all the cows on that planet. I'm just kidding. Um, I, I, did a, I did a talk about that. If you look at my archives on astrology on other planets, it's kind of a fun talk. You might go back and find that one. Uh, well, there's... Some uh, something about um, someone asked a question about the course. I saw that too, and I want to see if I can find that one. Um, someone who's in my courses here, Gladys, saying that adding all the stuff is overwhelming and having a foundation is a really good idea. I'm glad that you're picking that up from the course. That's obviously a huge emphasis in the, in the program. Um, mm, I don't see anything else. There's, I thought someone had a question about the program. If I'm missing it, the program starts on Saturday. You can email me if you have any questions about it, info at nightlightastrology.com. 
uh, and go to my website, nightlightastrology.com, click on the courses page. Are different schools of astrology best suited for different types of questions or even clients? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly like, uh, the short answer is just yes. But I think, I feel like, you know, if you have very specific predictive questions, like horary is really good. You know, horary can do something like, are we going to stay together or break up? Horary can say, when will I meet the next person? Horary can do stuff like, um, I mean, all sorts of fun stuff. It's very specific. It's predictive. It tends to be yes or no questions and outcome oriented horary medical astrology or natal astrology, you know, so, um, elect electional astrology, there's mundane astrology. There's all sorts, uh, depending on what the type of question is. Yes. Then there's different schools of astrology, which are going to be like, okay, you've got traditional forms like medieval Hellenistic Indian, then modern forms like modern archetypal, psychological, evolutionary Uranian, you know, you've got all sorts of stuff. And those are going to be less about the types of questions and more about the philosophy that appeals to you. Um, I think that's what I've got now. Holy cow, 400 people watching this. That's awesome. Uh, what are some book recommendations for understanding the planets in depth from a traditional perspective? Well, first of all, um, I feel like there, there needs to be more written about the planets in ancient astrology from more of a depth perspective. That's what I strive to teach in my class. So I haven't written a book about it. I hope to maybe someday, but um, I feel like that's lacking. I feel like that there's, there, there's a book that needs to be written, you know, um, because ancient astrology, you have to remember that the Hellenistic astrology that we're teaching now was literally kind of rediscovered through Greek texts being translated into English in like the 80s and 90s. So you're talking about the re-emergence re of the most ancient form of horoscopic astrology in the West only being available to us in the West in modern times for like the past 30, 40 years. So um, it's really unique in that sense. So there, there needs to be more written, right? There's some books that'll give you some introduction to the like broad concepts and stuff like that. But a deeper, you know, inner workings philosophically, psychologically, uh, the, the, the approach to ancient astrology. There's just a lot more that needs to be written. Charles Obert uh, wrote a book on the traditional planets. It's just good in terms of almost like a compendium of what the traditional texts themselves say about the planets. Um, but it's not, I, I, love his, I love his book. He lives in Minneapolis, so I've actually met him before. Um, but I wouldn't say that it's like a depth perspective. Uh, so, if you watch Becca Tarnas's talk that she just gave in my speaker series, you can watch the replay on my website. If you go to the events page, all the replays from my annual speaker, my seasonal speaker series are there. Her talk was really good and it gives some really good deep perspective on planets and um, archetypes. And she, her, she is able to tap into uh, ancient philosophy at the same time. Uh, let's see, I think we're done. Um, I think we'll. Is the moon influencing women more than men? No, 
I mean, well, your menstrual cycle might be synced up with the moon, you know, like maybe that, that, I mean, I've noticed that with my wife, you know, and like, uh, some of her friends, especially when we were on longer, you know, like yoga retreats, the women would sometimes like sync up actually, which is kind of interesting. Um, and that seems to be a moon thing, but, um, and certainly the moon is more indicative of like, you know, feminine things in general in ancient astrology than masculine. Um, but it's also a very fluid planet that can change genders and expressions very fluidly. All the planets are like that. So there's always kind of the yin yang binary. And then there's a lot of fluidity that you see in how planets express themselves at the same time. So it can be pretty interesting. Uh, I love that you, someone pulled a knife out of their dishwasher that was lodged underneath the heating element and melted the handle. <laughs> that's so that's, uh, that's very good for Mercury, uh, Mercury, Mars right now, isn't it? Uh, okay. Um, okay. Being a culture, this is a good one. Being a culture with a foundation in religion. How do we merge astrology? Our foundation of religion continue seeking truth, with the spiritual path being taught. They are separate. Well, they're really not separate. I mean, one of the interesting things is that astrology is really uh, at the core of the history of religion on this planet it, in the Christian church. Uh, it's present in all the major religions at different times and stages. You have uh, Muslims who are pra great practitioners. You have Christians who are great practitioners. You have Buddhist practicing forms of astrology. You have astrology in China. You have astrology in India. You have astrology in sub-Saharan Africa. You have astrology in South Central America and different forms, of course. It's like, you know, it's unfortunate that we've lost the divinatory way of knowing. It's a different epistemology. It's a different, you're approaching life and saying that rather than life being something that has to be figured out like a clock, what you're saying is that reality is a being filled with beings and that the approach to truth is relational and relationships speak in signs and symbols. So when you start studying signs and symbols and assuming that reality is a being with beings in it, peopled by beings, that everything is alive, sentient, animate, the approach to understanding has to become relational rather than penetrating into like the inner objectifying mechanics of it. Mechanics are, are like just a total sideshow in a reality that it's, it's not, they're, they're, they're in, mechanics are in service to relationship. Otherwise we've got it backwards. So, you know, that's why I say in my class, a lot of the times, if someone doesn't have a reason for coming to a reading, it's not going to go very well because the reading is the moment of astrology and the ability for astrology to be radical and for the diviner to actually, you know, like lightning rod, like connect and have something relevant to say the symbols speak radically. There's novelty coming across in the reading. It has to do with there being relational reasons for the person approaching the chart. The more relational the concerns are that the client has that relate them to people, jobs, things in their life, and that relate you to them and their concerns, the more that there's something's going to speak because reality is just like that. So yeah, at any rate, I would just say that they're not separate and we just have to, us people who are into astrology just have to be enthusiastic about sharing symbolic life. You know what I mean? Just like, hey, reality is relational and it's filled with all these amazing languages of symbolism that are floating around us, inviting us to participate and co-create meaning together. Like, let's do it, you know? And then just, just, just do it yourself. And I think that changes culture over time. Heck, it has changed culture. Look at right now, one of the most emerging, like the, uh, one of the most 
impressive features about modern astrology is that it's becoming more and more of an emerging industry. Now, in some ways, you could, you could, you know, you could debate about that, whether it's all good or not, but it's like, it's not, it's not a bad thing that astrology is becoming more and more popular uh, because it, at the very least, it's getting people to engage in this kind of knowing, whether they know it or not, you know? So, uh, okay. Thank you. My church makes me feel guilty about astrology. Oh, that's too bad. I'm sorry to hear that. There's a lot of, there's a lot of wounds, you know, like re religion has a lot of it comes down to the ancient, you know, view was that, you know, nobody wanted the church to take away free will or the uh, astrology to take away free will because one re one argument was that you needed to have free will to choose a, um, a spiritual life or a life committed to Christ, for example. And then through the, um, the intercession of God in your life, you use your free will to reform yourself. And if you're locked into your fate and there's just this prevailing stoic worldview, right? That's a threat to free will, which is needed for real reform of the spirit. That's not an enemy to astrology. It's an enemy to stoicism. Well, astrology is not stoicism. I hate to break it because I know that a lot, like there's a lot of people nowadays saying that astrology is just came from stoicism in the ancient world. It not, it did not, it was practiced by stoics, but it, it's very clear that it came from people who were talking about a very intricate marriage between um, choices and the inevitable laws of reaction, what we might call karma that come from choices. And that means that there's always a relationship between choice and agency and outcome that reality is relational and that truth is something we discover through choice and through experience and experiencing the consequences of our action, which we call, broadly also call fate. So that worldview is not just, you know, Stoics adopted astrology and, and they certainly practice it with an eye for, you know, how um, we live with the reality of fate and that there is also a sense of destiny and the gods having intervention in life and stuff like that. And you have to sort of surrender to it, but it's, you know, and, and you can understand how people would react to that with some need for freedom. And so the, a lot of the old Christian, you know, baggage comes from that whole debacle, but it's, it also is, it's unfortunate because um, when you look at, the, you know, basic concepts like the, the grahas that we talk about, the grabbers, and yet it also means to grasp. So here, let me read just something you guys want. All right, check this out. So um, this is a really, some good quotes. This is from Chris Brennan's book on uh, Hellenistic astrology. Uh, it was one of the source texts that we use in my class. Um, doo -doo 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 -doo. Ah, here we go. Yes. This study, this is Firmicus Maternus, who was uh, also, um, he was in the Roman Empire and 
had a Christian conversion that we don't know if it was necessarily before or after he became an astrologer. Anyway, he says this study, study of astrology, will most successfully bring us to the point where our souls will despise everything which is considered evil or good in human affairs. For when we learn of the approach of difficulties, we despise the threat of evils because we have learned from our doctrine about things to come. We do not shrink from dangers once foretold. Now, this is the important part. By recollection of its majesty, our souls have formed themselves to withstand these things. So in other words, we're practicing astrology to shape within our soul some sense of our happiness and our well-being not being rooted in or determined by events. We are not overcome by bad fortune, nor elated by promise of high office. Thus fortified by stable reason, we can cannot be oppressed by ill fortune nor overjoyed at the expectation of good. But this is not just we blindly accept good and bad because we're just being real, you know, like stoic about things. It's a stoic attitude, but it also admits of an eternal soul that is forming itself to, to have experiences in this world um, that go beyond the, the constant, you know, uh, dualities of fortune. Yeah, so um, Hermes and Zoroaster say that philosophers as a class are superior to fate because they neither rejoice in her good fortune, for they are master over pleasures, nor are they thrown by the evils she sends as they always lead an inner life. So that's the point. Really, that's the point of astrology. And it's not that there's nothing evil about that. It's, does, it, does, does Jesus not teach us all over the New Testament about, um, you know, a peace that passes understanding? Is that not the exact same point? That we're using astrology to come to deeper soulful reality? Uh, that there's some deeper peace that abides in us no matter what, where we walk in life? I don't see how that's any different from what Christ taught personally. And it goes to show that like many of the early uh you know, contributors to Christian history were astrologers. Anyway, okay, I think we'll end here for today. I really enjoyed this, uh, really enjoyed talking with you guys today, just shooting the breeze uh, in some good Mercury, Mars, Saturn uh, uh, topics and uh, everything like that. I got to go dip my head in some cool water. So um, I'll be back tomorrow for more uh, content. I think we're going to be breaking down some of the lighter transits in the air. Because did you know that the sun is also about to come into a square with Jupiter and trine Neptune? So that's kind of fun that that's happening at the same time that all these more intense Mercury, Mars, Saturn energies are, are building. In the meantime, I hope you guys have a great evening. Thanks for all being here and sharing some time, your questions, your input, your comments, your, your presence. It's really nice to have a community uh, of people to do this kind of stuff with. So um, I look forward to more tomorrow. Take it easy, guys.